So if we delve a little bit deeper into what's projecting or what's causing these sorts of mandates, it comes down to what people value. We actually advocate that if without an educational system that works, well, good luck having a cohesive society in 20 years time. And I sort of feel like as a society and as a world, we've moved beyond that, that paradigm. And, and, and therefore, if our context has changed, it only goes to follow that our, our thinking should change. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Chris Menage. Chris has got over 20 years experience in international and national contexts. Uh, he worked in government and in private enterprise before making a transition to education. And he's currently the founder of Educational Ecosystems, or E2, which is really about building networks and connecting uh, innovators of all walks of life uh, through education, within education, for education. I think you'll find our conversation with Chris quite uh, uh, interesting from the point of view of just someone who's got an open view and vision for education, how it needs to be centered around um, learning uh, and around working with the current historical changes, the current historical context, the different actors that are involved uh, in society, and really thinking about uh, the flexibility that we have to have intellectually, emotionally, uh, in every single way uh, to deal with the changing circumstances today, but also in the future. Um, I'll, I'll leave way to the conversation with Chris, uh, and I'm sure that you'll find uh, his insights and information uh, exciting and insightful and, uh, and, uh, and provocative as well, which is what we're looking for. Anyways, I'll leave space for Chris and uh, hear from you soon. So hi, Chris. Thanks so much for being on our podcast and a contributor. Uh, we've uh, talked a bit uh, on Zoom before and, and on LinkedIn, and I, and I follow you quite closely. Uh, really looking forward to some of your thoughts and, and what you do, which is a little bit different uh, from uh, what uh, many people do on our, uh, on, our, on our podcast. We try to have a, a wide uh, variety. So, so I'm keen on, on, on how you see the world and your experience. The first question I'll ask you is, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Thanks, Ben, and it's it's a pleasure to to be on today and to have a chat, continue our conversations together. Um, I'm joining you from from Melbourne, and my name is Chris Menage. I'm uh, the the founding partner of E Squared Educational Ecosystems, and my role is to collaborate innovatively, innovatively with innovative collaborators. Uh, and so, what that means is basically, my belief is that. By joining together and sharing our collective uh, expertise and our, and our lived experiences, we can really uh, drive momentum to change systems design. And by changing that, uh, those systems design, I believe that we can sort of set the, the framework for progressive societies moving forward. You know, you know we, we live in a time of division and we live in a time of polarity. Um, and the more work that we can do to engage people with each other and to bridge the gaps that might exist between each other, you know, my belief is that the stronger we'll be uh, moving forward. One of the things that uh, we, we really want to do on this show is, is try to get a, a, a shared understanding of what learning is. It's a word that's thrown out there. It's, it's measured in different ways, thought of in different ways, but there's not often a discussion of what learning is. So I'll ask you, how do you define learning? Yeah, um, it's, it's great to always start with those points of reference, isn't it, uh, Ben? But for me, learning is about uh, understanding self and understanding self within a context and within a, a broader community. Um, and so what I mean by that is uh, 
And, I, and I've sort of designed a model around this called Emergent Squared, where I combine Bloom's and Maslow's uh, philosophical model. Um, and what I try and show is that if we can learn, the, the more that we can learn about ourselves and our purpose and what makes us tick and uh, self-actualizing and, and self-authoring, then the greater opportunity we have to understand complex uh, pieces of information um, and understand the, the nuance between between things. Uh, so, so for me, that that's the objective. As an educator, uh, my objective is to help my students learn who they are, what makes them tick, how they contribute, what their purpose is. My objective is not to get them to get 100% um, you, you know, in, in the exam. If that's a byproduct of our engagement uh, in class or in what we do, all the better. But it's not the it's not the starting point uh, objective. And can I just add also, Ben? Learning is not something that's the sole province of uh, schools. It doesn't happen only in schools. You know, I'm always amused that we sort of think that you know we learn in schools or at university, and then that's it. But you know, like you and I are big advocates for uh, in the work that you do as well. We reflect constantly, and we 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 adapt what we're doing because we're we're learning in real time. Um, yeah, it's almost like we're, we're all in this constant action research project and, um, and uh, modifying what we do to reflect those learned experiences. And this brings up a little bit to the conversation we had before I hit record, which is that the opportunities that we have with online learning are often, not always, but often missed because we feel like we have to deliver the same curriculum. Where actually what you're talking about, about learning the self and, and connecting with others, this is a fantastic opportunity when finally we have people in the same household under the same household. What are your thoughts on that? Or, or how, what have you seen? You gave a beautiful example just before um, of what you're doing with your class where you've asked your, your, your students to you know, go, out into, um, their, go out into their local neighborhood and, and observe things that they might see that resonate with them. Uh, and the other example you gave was the, the the students, you know, going to your kitchen, cook up a meal, and in doing so, analyze where all that food comes from, um, you know, map out the journey of that food, um, and, uh, and and write about that from a globalization perspective. So for me, that example that you gave is a beautiful segue into how easy it is to provide students with the hook help them recognize where the hooks are in their daily life for the theoretical concepts and, and the um and, and and in doing so that then triggers the you know the higher order thinking that we always talk about which is coming back to your question about learning higher order thinking is what i'm, I'm aiming to achieve and i'm sure what you're aiming to achieve as an educator as well um so uh Come back to your question about the, the the online learning. What I liked about those two examples that you gave was that you've recognised that the students don't need to be face to face on the screen with you in order to achieve um, a learned outcome or or, or to or to grow. Uh, and it's a shame, I think, that we've seen or some you know some elements of. Um, of the remote uh, you know, lockdown has meant that students have spent so much time on screens to the detriment of their well-being, their social emotional learning um, and socialization opportunities, because it's not necessary. And interestingly, uh, this conversation we're having today comes off the back of two really disappointing um, outcomes uh, or events in Australian education recently where 
a really important report submitted by um, Jeff Masters uh, a couple of months ago around the importance of uh, individualized uh, learning or personalized learning and student agency finally came out, you know, to, to, to add some, some weight to the teacher voice around this area. Um, and that has been knocked back by a government committee saying that we need to revert back to textbooks. Um, and the other one was a, a, quite a remarkable example of the antithesis of student voice uh, in terms of producing a product which will actually disengage youth in um, a, uh, a video about uh, sexual consent which utilizes the metaphor of a milkshake with two young actors. Um, and I encourage your listeners to, to, to jump onto that website to see, uh, I believe it's uh, goodsociety.gov.au or .org.au. You know, as educators, um, Ben, you'd look at that and you just either thump your, um, your forehead uh, in, um, you know, in, in uh, confusion, or have a good hearty laugh. Yeah, I saw this morning that they were bringing back textbook or thinking about it in Australia. And I, I didn't see it too much in depth. I just read it over a cup of coffee. But what are your thoughts on that? And this is, I suppose, where we do have a, a, a duty or, or a responsibility not to be too binary and, and, um, and polarizing about this. There's no question that textbooks have place. You know, it would be foolish to assume that everything can be learned, you know, off the cuff. Or, um, or that there's not a place for, you know, embedding some serious uh, consolidation around, you know, textbooks. However, to mandate or to dictate something such as a textbook in order to learn or to equate that learning will only happen through the use of a textbook is, in my opinion and in my experience of, you know, X number of years teaching with a wide range of students of different ages and so on, uh, is very, very short-sighted. Um, and, and misses the entire point around agency and the key role of agency in, in driving effective learning. And yeah, the content piece, you know, it, you're right. A lot of people present it as a binary. Oh no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating to make my point, but a lot of people think that not wanting textbooks means that you're not believing in content. Like, oh, we should just forget content, let people do what they want and we can finger paint all day. But, but it isn't a question of that, right? It, it, it's, uh, it's, 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 understanding that you don't need a complete mastery of content before you can apply it. And much like you don't need to know how to walk when you're learning to walk, you just kind of get up and stubble on your face. Um, it's the same concept of learning. And, and you know, all those people who advocate textbooks, last time they programmed their, their I wouldn't say VCR because that's clearly going to date me, but, but you know, their, their TV, nobody looks at the manual. You just kind of play around with it, at least in, in many cases. Um, it is a false binary, uh, and and uh, and and one that doesn't make, you know, that 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 just oversimplifies the issue, and and, and really is a straw man. It's a, it, it's a great analogy you used there of the TV, but I think what we need to do is we need to delve a little bit deeper into what's driving these sorts of recommendations or these mandates and these policy decisions, which you know, we need to note that they're being made often by people who are not qualified in the area of education have little, if any, experience in classrooms, which, which devalues the expertise of those hardworking educators um, and, and, and the quality of, of, um, 
you know, of, of their qualifications. You know, you and I wouldn't, wouldn't um, we wouldn't walk into our doctor's uh, surgery and tell the, you know, the surgeon, oh, this isn't, this isn't how to you know, perform this surgery. Uh, I would leave it up to the experts, you know, to, to provide that advice, um, the medical experts. And, and just so, I think it's only fair and reasonable to expect that teachers have a role and a voice in determining what the best way forward is in terms of education. So you, you made the analogy there about the TV and, and, and the false binary. And I think that's really crucial because education is about differentiation and recognizing what every uh, learner needs. So if we delve a little bit deeper into what's projecting or what's causing these sorts of mandates, it comes down to what people value. Um, and we were talking again before the podcast we're talking about our worldviews. So, if the uh, you know the bureaucrat or the policymaker values outcomes that can be seen and touched and measured and are immediate in the short term, then yeah, maybe the textbook would be what's required because it's a very manageable um, and malleable you know um, product. However, if our worldview is far more centered around actualizing the person's full potential, uh, helping the person to navigate those knee scrapes and falls and cuts and, you know, um, uh, emotional bruises that will come along that journey and, 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 and embracing failure and so on, then a textbook is not the answer. You know, it's, it's part of the answer, but it's not what we need to be relying on. And, you know, I really need to work at, uh, not being too disappointed by these sorts of comments because all these sorts of uh, initiatives because it really does feel like you know um two steps forward one step backwards but hopefully as a collective we are continuing to move uh you know in, you know in a positive way and i guess that even if someone were to listen and say well you know i don't believe in this warm woolly fuzzy you know self-actualization human beings we need to get kids ready for work and for university uh, the question still comes up about the fact that we're preparing kids today for something that we don't know anything about. And, and, and I know this is a trope that's been used over and over and over and over again, but, but this, the, the, the biotech and, and, and data tech changes, the revolutions are going to make it so that it's, it's just not going to, we don't, we have no clue. How, how are we preparing kids with this curriculum for later on? And Ben, how's that going for us, um, that preparing kids for life up to now, uh, for work up to now? How's that going for us? If we look, so, you know, I, I, I quite enjoy engaging in this sort of conversation um, by reverting just to the statistics and the data. So if we look at the stats, by every measurement, whether it's, uh, you know, anxiety rates, um, heaven forbid, um, suicide levels, of you know under 25s or males between the age of 18 to 42, um, whether it's um, workforce uh, engagement levels, whether it's divorce rates, um, whether it's just the um, the academic uh, the decline in PISA standards, you know, I would challenge us to look at where the statistics are showing improvement other than GDP growth. Other than maybe income, you know, growth. Although even in that area, the income disparities and inequalities are, are more stark now than ever before. Um, 
So the material aspects of our lives in terms of our quality of living and so on, yeah, they're, they're improving. We're living longer and so forth. Um, but that's presenting a whole host of other issues in terms of a, of a, a disconnection between who we are as human beings as opposed to what we're doing on an everyday level. And so, again, it comes back down to what do we value and do we measure uh, you know, do we value that which we measure or do we measure that which we value? And I think that requires a conversation around our, um, our learning recognition systems. How do we recognize success? Uh, are we going to recognize it according to a grade or are we going to recognize it according to the culmination of a portfolio or a profile that really displays and advocates for who that student is as a human being and their contribution to, to the world, because as you just pointed out, the world is ever more interconnected. Um, you know, one person has a virus in China and six months later, the entire world is in lockdown. Um, how are our students going to navigate that by learning a binary A and B through to, you know, to, to, to Z instead of learning that it's not A or B, but it's, um, you know, A and B or possibly just AB, you know, and those, those subtle nuances really are important in my, in my opinion. And it's about the possibility of imagining different futures for ourselves because right now with this neoliberal meritocratic system, it is work hard, go to university, work hard, get a job, work harder, and force your kids to go through all this with their incessant piano lessons, extracurriculars, and study like that. What's confusing about this conversation, Ben, is that if you look at the, um, the inventors and the those who we hold up as a society as the geniuses of that, you know, the Leonardo da Vinci's or the Steve Jobs or the um, Einstein's, and you look at all those sorts of examples, none of those examples were the traditional linear rote learning type of people. They were polymaths and they were, um, they had a wide variety of interests and they would often comment how their moments of eureka and their, their, their geniuses of innovation and you know, imagination sparks came from those times of either, you know, solitude or quiet reflection or experiencing some adversity and that required them to, you know, to think outside the box. And so evidently as a, as a collective, as a society, we recognise that that is success, that, that achieves exceptional change. Um, and yet we're not encouraging students to do that. We're, we're encouraging them to fit into these boxes and to... Um, Go and adopt your place on the factory line. Uh, yeah, for, for me, if we continue doing what we've always done, well, we're going to get what we always get. I mean, that's more of the same. And one of the things that uh, really has surprised me over, uh, or really, I guess, encapsulates what, what you're saying is a lot of higher ability learners who are doing the same work, and I use the, the term, uh, I target that word work because it's not necessarily fun, um, in class get, get done earlier than the rest, whatever, for whatever reason. And then they're just given more work, right? Rather than being given the opportunity to, to create, to do, and that's beyond the fact that they shouldn't be doing everything that everybody else is doing, but, but th th it's always seen as if you're not doing anything, just give them more, give them more, punish them for their higher value rather than, than giving them that open space. How can we work in a school system that has all these structured outcomes? How can we allow teachers to feel comfortable in letting go, in saying, have the time to do what you want to do, and it's okay? 
Uh, great question. I, I mean, I, I would start by saying, first of all, my heart obviously goes out to those students and to those educators who find themselves in those predicaments because um, none of it is intentionally, um, there's no ill intent around that. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's a, it's a demonstration of the pressure uh, and the, the weight of expectations on, on all concerned in respect of, again, the learning recognition that we give to success. How do we define success? And if we define it by the quantity of work that that student puts out instead of the quality of that work, if we define it by the amount that that student can write, learn successful exam strategies, um, then they will do that over and over and over again. And the teacher will push them towards that. Um, however, if we define success as something different and, and if we define it as those more abstract uh, skills of collaboration and critical analysis and uh, you know, self, self authorship and so on, then we would give this, the, the teachers the, not the free reign, because there's always a need for compliance and accountability and so forth, but the, the permission to exercise their agency. Um, I did a really interesting uh, submission to UNESCO last year with the uh, Futures of Education um, project where um, 14 collaborators uh, came together and gave e exemplars of what they felt had been the most impactful program that they had done in education. And the, the way that we had designed it was that everybody just presented their case study. And then we, we analyzed these case studies to try and find the common threads that really led to the success of these projects. And after quite a bit of discussion and analysis, what we found was that the common thread was that these programs originated from educators who had identified what the students were passionate about, what the students wanted to get engaged with, designed the learning around that, and then gave the students the agency to, to explore that. Now, there were some very clear parameters around um, how to uh, you know, track the progress and, and to make it all accountable. But in essence, the nature of those um, programs were not dictated by a curriculum that was centralized and, you know, thou shalt learn about, you know, uh, colonization in this way. It was more about um, the teachers recognizing this is happening in society. Let's get the students to um, consider what they're passionate about and to link the concepts through that topic that they've chosen. And how do we then go about showcasing that creativity, what is produced? How are we going to show it in ways that are moving us away from, from the homogeneity that are just marks, you know, uh, bringing everything down to one letter or one number for a whole semester's, you know, uh, thinking work and, and production? How, how do we go about doing that? How, how do we make it so that we can assess, evaluate whatever contributions someone might make based on what they've done before? I love how your questions are always sort of solutions oriented, but very, very practical, Ben. Um, look, I think there's, there's countless ways that we can do it. And I would start with some, some immediate ones, such as what you're doing right now through a podcast is professional learning. So our, our interactions, you know, the few interactions that we've had, I'll always walk away with a reflection point or something that's triggered, you know, a concept that then I can build on. Um, those are opportunities for um, learning and for showcasing, uh, you know, what we've come up with. You know, I've mentioned a couple of the models that I've come up with as a reflection of my time. Um, and you've had you know uh, dozens of other uh, guests on on your podcast. Uh, more formally than that, um, or actually, sorry, before I go into the formal, uh, 
other informal sort of opportunities are on, you know, on social media. I've noticed over the last decade, the change in the sorts of information that's posted on LinkedIn, where it used to be quite a, you know, a static, almost CV type of platform, to instead a professional learning community where resources are freely available and shared, um, discussions are entered into without, you know, without going uh, too far into it, but it's almost like a gateway into further uh, collaboration. I think they're opportunities to showcase because people inherently can identify um, a fantastic program. You know, we see it and we, we, we feel it, we, we sense it. Um, so it's, it's pretty evident what's working and what's not working. So that's a good example to um, showcase best practice. I think there's more and more, um, you know, international festivals uh, around the world. Uh, you know, a couple of examples that come to uh, to mind are, you know, the Hundred Org had their um, innovation festival last year, um, which was a fantastic, uh, you know, example of again educators coming together and generously, freely sharing their expertise. I think that's where we may have actually um, initially uh, touched touch base, um, and um, you know, you know, more formal examples would be look, there's dozens of different frameworks. Uh, ben, you're at the international uh, school, I believe. Um, which do you, do you operate under an international baccalaureate um, program? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, the, the international baccalaureate has obviously got its own community and it's got its framework of the learner profile and how to develop that. That's a very uh, you know appropriate and very successful uh, model. You've got, um, you know, you've got the round square schools around the world who promote student agency in, in different ways. Uh, you've got, um, you know, dozens of other formal ways, vehicles of, of doing it, and more and more coming out, you know, each and every year. Uh, Australia at the moment, there's an organisation called Learning Creates Australia, which is doing a, a really large collaboration um, with, you know, upwards of, you know, a hundred or so. Um, people of all walks of life and all expertise coming together to try and design a new system of learning recognition. How do we define success? And a lot of what you're mentioning involves bringing people together, collaboration, and that's a lot of the work that you do over at, uh, at Educational Ecosystems. Tell us a little bit more about, about what the nature of your work is and, and how it's maybe different from, from what's out there and, and, and some of the successes that you've had. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, look, I'm really passionate about highlighting how Learning takes place each and every day in the community. Um, and so to really try and uh, formalize uh, those learning opportunities through these models. And so what I do is I, um, I identify uh, key players in, in community, um, key players in business, key players in, in government who are contributing in some way or form to social capital, which, which is, is necessary for any progressive society. It helps us weather storms like uh, COVID, uh, it helps us be more resilient. And it also means that we incubate those essential ingredients for, in, um, for innovation and for adaptation, which is what we need you know, moving forward. So I, I, I'm like the connector. Um, I, I bridge the gaps that might not be obvious between those players and how they might be able to accentuate uh, their respective areas and, and the work that they do. Um, so, you know, yes, I liaise with schools and I, I help them to see the opportunity that lie in their local community. But, but more than that, I also work with, you know, government agencies and 
and help them to um, really showcase what is working in their in, in their policies or um, what's working in their local communities as well. Um, so, you know, a recent project that's really gained some good traction is a series on social capital that I've been um, uh, releasing some short uh, video or vlogs, uh, creative videos around interviewing people who are doing a good initiative on social capital and um, really articulating how that one venture contributes to the greater good. Um, and so, yeah, I'm looking forward to continuing that uh, that journey and working with more and more um, people in that area. So it's people from different areas that come together. I mean, tell us more about, about some of the projects that, that you might have had, maybe a story without necessarily naming names, but but a story of, of how that's that's uh, changed uh, uh, areas and people for good. Yeah, sure. So look, I, I, I draft reports that might help. One recent report was around the emergence of hybrid learning as a more permanent um, option for schools. So, you know, the blended learning where students can work uh, at school face-to-face, -face, but also have the option of um, opting out on particular days to do remote learning. And there's lots of, you know, issues that need to be um, uh, considered and, and uh, hoops that need to be jumped through in order to make sure that that's a safe and plausible uh, option. Um, new schools that, uh, that, that uh, are, are being created all the time, they might be for uh, gifted and talented or... Uh, people with um, students with particular needs. Um, I provide them with advice on how to design, um, you know, their their frameworks. Um, school design. Uh, so you know, architects and um, and educators and school administrators who come together and think about um, with the students. Think about well, what actually makes for a really engaging learning environment physically. Uh, I sort of bring that that intellectual. Um, consideration around what helps the students to be in the zone to achieve flow you know is it to be in a clinical type of environment where everything's white in desks and in rows or is it in a more um homely soft uh perhaps with a bit of um you know green you know nature in it to to trigger those those creative juices um you know, and right through to uh, recently a, a, a local council um, engaging with their community uh, community assistance um, programs and advocating for the local businesses that really contribute back into the community. So instead of, you know, a profit just for the, for the company, it's, it's a business for purpose where um, by all means, you know, entrepreneurs earn, earn a profit, but there's an element of recognising, hey, we're part of a bigger system, we're part of a bigger picture, and we can only succeed if everybody succeeds. So let's factor that into our planning and into our um, our business strategy. One of the things that you brought up is new schools. And, and I've been having conversations as well about change, whether it can happen within the system and whether or not, you know, if it's even worth pushing that boulder up the hill or if it's just something that's immovable. And then from other folks are saying, look, I just want out. I just want to start my own school. I can't do it within the system. On the one hand, if you do it within the system, you know there's more room for change. If it's a bigger reward and payoff, but gosh, the forces of resistance are, are are massive. And if you try your new school, you're on the fringes, so you're not really actually going to affect change. What what are your views? And and I know there's you won't have an opinion. It's a case by case study. I, I get that. But but what are some of your experiences and 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 insights in, into this uh, into this uh, continuum? It's a tricky area, Ben, and it's a, it's a bit of a minefield, really, because for me, it also raises the issue of self-care or, or, or well-being 
to prevent burnout. And you know, I, I'm certainly not the best uh, example of that uh, in terms of sustain, sustainably uh, trying to achieve change from within. Um, and yet I, I, I do believe that the only way we can achieve meaningful change is by working within the system together. I, I, my, my sense is that um, stepping away and, um, and sort of outright rejecting um, the collective, um, if we fast forward that, I don't see that bringing us to a, a cohesive outcome. I think for me, to my mind, that would just accentuate tribalism, the division, you know, the polarization. Um, I, I really believe, and I suppose, Hence, you know, my modelling around, um, you know, the, the, the E squared is all about the amplification of coming together. What can you achieve when we all work together as a collective? I've, I've designed a model called Confluence uh, Squared around this, where I've tried to illustrate how um, I believe that systems will change eventually when the innovators and the collaborators within the system come together and in doing so really amplify their influence and their impact on the system. That will, the system design will eventually change by virtue of that mass, um, uh, the impetus you know, generated by that mass. So I would really encourage, and you know, certainly any new educator out there um, or certainly any um, uh, long-standing educators to you know, always embrace those opportunities to uh, to engage with others. As I've said it before, you and I are engaging now. Um, we're doing so, you know, voluntarily and, and because we want to grow and learn from each other. You'll take away some things and I'll certainly take away some things. Like, you know, I love some of your thinking around um, uh, coconut thinking and, um, and, and, and the sort of values that you espouse in your education. So there we go. There's two people who have a ripple effect, hopefully, uh, and, and that will all add up in the long run. And hopefully we can bring in also the politicians or some of these decision makers or at least, <laughs> a, no, but, I, but I really mean that in, 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 in a serious note, right? I mean, um, because at the end of the day, they, they hold the key. And, and as you mentioned earlier, they don't necessarily have the expertise, but somebody needs to lobby for this point of view because the only people who are lobbying now are the textbook editors. And there's a good mate uh, of mine and, and we often have a chuckle that here in Australia, we have Every single political party under the sun, we've got, you know, the legalized marijuana party. We have the Australian, uh, I think it was the sex party. We have the, uh, the fish uh, shooters, uh, you know, party. Why don't we have an education party? You know, maybe us educators need to start a political party where um, we, we actually advocate that if without a, an educational system that works, well, good luck having a cohesive society in 20 years time. Uh, you know, in, in, in my experience, uh, living around the world and, and being in different cultures and, and working in different industries, um, if you start divesting from education or if you start abdicating your responsibility around the importance of an educational system, you're in for, um, you're in for a bit of a shock. Do you have any uh, projects or plans or what's coming up in, in your future that you're thinking about? Uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to engaging with several innovators uh, coming, uh, you know, internationally coming into the Australian educational market and looking to uh, enhance the learning of students through, um, you know, innovative uh, platforms, particularly online platforms. Um, so, you know, I'm looking forward to finding the, 
the right context, the right schooling uh, context for those uh, you know, innovators to come into. I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation with uh, local councils and government agencies around um, the reality of their policy decisions and, and how to leverage those policies uh, in a meaningful way to have positive impact in their community. Um, and beyond, beyond that, in the immediate uh, future, Ben, I'm looking forward to continuing my little um, my own little journey of you know self-actualization of, of continuing to reflect a little bit on some modeling. I've got another model coming out called Nuance Squared, where I really try and drill into uh, the importance of reading between the lines and understanding the complexity about issues. You know, I, I sort of sense that the public discourse at the moment is not helped by the superficial uh, analysis of things and, and the spin, the extent to which spin and superficiality has, um, has uh, taken control of the narrative. I think that that's to the detriment of our collective wellbeing. And so, you know, this model of uh, nuance squared is, is centered around uh, helping users to engage with different strategies that encourage um, you know, really deep, deep learning and deep thinking. And this goes back to me saying that I vaguely saw today on some feed that there was something about textbooks in Australia. And that's, you know, you just zip through it, you zip through it, and, and the amount of content that we get is simply overwhelming. How does that work? How, how, what are some of these strategies? And I don't want you to give too much away just yet, but what are some of the strategies that you might think of uh, in terms of being able to engage with that deeper learning when we have such a vast amount of content that's coming at us every moment? Uh, again, very good question, and, and I like the, uh, that practical uh, aspect that you keep coming in, coming to because I think it's important that we demonstrate how we we walk the talk instead of just talking about oh we should do this change and and, and then we don't do it. So for me, what I do is I take some very day-to-day um, -day research from uh, not from academic journals or academic textbooks, but from um, people authors who might have reflected on their lived experience, such as. For me, a, a big influence has been Hugh Mackay, his, his, his books on the good life or um, uh, what makes us tick uh, or our inner self. Um, and the other one would be, you know, Simon Sinek around, um, you know, the infinite game. Um, and I'm reading a, a fascinating book at the moment, which is very much influencing another model that I have just done called Resonance Squared. And that book is called The Seventh Sense by uh, Joseph Cooper Joseph Ramo um, and Connectography by uh, the author's name escapes me at the moment. So basically what I do is I take some of the uh, case studies or examples that these authors provide and I distill those into um, a classroom setting or a societal setting of how we can apply those ideas in, in, in reality. So for, for, for instance, one of the main contentions and premises that these authors talk about is this notion of interdependence. Um, and so if interdependence is crucial, how do we raise awareness and understanding of what independence, interdependence means from a day-to-day -day perspective? Um, and so the, the modeling that I, I provide is a graphical illustration of how that might apply in, in the real world. So um, for instance, with the resonance squared modeling, I look at something as basic as our five senses of you know, sight, sound, taste, touch, 
and so on, um, which are very tangible and, and quantifiable. And I sort of say to, to educators or to business people, okay, well, if you want to have a successful program or a product, then you obviously target those five obvious areas. But if you really want to excel and exceed at, um, at you know, ex expectations and aspirations, then the two other senses that you need to be thinking about is your sixth sense of intuition, you know, our old gut uh, feeling that, you know, for all intents and purposes, you mentioned neoliberalism earlier, under the neoliberal um, conservative uh, economic model, we've done away a lot of that gut instinct, the sixth sense, um, you know, we sort of um, demeaned it as being irrational and unreliable. And yet, um, history and successful civilizations would show that that actually has a really poor part in our decision making. So if we re-emphasize the importance of, of that sixth sense, but then beyond that, um, so Ken Robinson talks a lot about the seventh sense uh, and the balance between all of those things. So if we link that to, again, the premise of all these authors of interdependence, if we help uh, people to understand that what I do um, in, you know, impacts on other people around me, that the, you know, the consuming, uh, the decisions of consumption that I make contributes to a collective uh, system, then you know we have a, we have a we play a role in in shaping systems design uh, in the long term. Nothing's done in the electoral cycle of three or four years. It's all done um, you know over a generation. I'm not sure if that answers the question. Ben. No, I mean it does. I, I you know it's uh, I, and I'm really glad that you shared these authors. I think you've just given me the idea that every single contributor from now on, I'm going to ask them what are you reading. Uh, I think a lot of good things come from this. A lot of uh, of, of, of good insight and certainly it's going to add to my library and, and what you bring up about the, the, the seventh sense um, reminds me of the fact that um, that's where motivation comes from, right? That's where excitement and curiosity comes from. It doesn't come from your reason. It comes from your gut about being really excited about something. Don't know why. I'm just really excited about it and I want to learn more. And there's, you know, there's intersections between all of those themes um, that these authors raise. You know, Mark Manson in his two books, um, talks about the emotional, um, the emotional brain and the rational brain and how, you know, at, at the period of enlightenment, um, you know, we sort of moved away from, during the Renaissance, it was all about the emotional brain. You know, it was very much about the art and the arts uh, leading the way. Um, but then, you know, we entered into this era of the rational brain, particularly around the industrial revolution, where it was all about, you know, um, creating systems uh, to produce you know, outputs, you know, so many inputs equates to these outputs. Um, and look, and then that served its purpose for a time. But I sort of feel like as a society and as a world, we've moved beyond that, that paradigm. And, and, and therefore, if our context has changed, it only goes to follow that our, our thinking should change. Um, and so, you know, Mark Manson's argument about the rational and the emotional brain there is complemented by um, that notion of flow uh, and that students will achieve that flow where they don't even realize that they are working in inverted commas, but they're actually just feeding that, what you just described, that, that sense of curiosity, of, of passion and of complete concentration, because this is a joy to, to, be, to be learning. Um, and you know, as educators, we would do really well to remember these things and, and, and to find ways to ignite those things instead of Hey kids, open open up to page thirty-seven, and I'm not saying that you know, everyone does that, but uh, um, 
again, I suppose just shining the light on the learning opportunities that happen each and every day, not just in schools, but walking down the street, um, having having a chat to the older person in the coffee shop, um, you know, learning about how you know the last sixty years of, of their experiences might have shaped their worldview and their contribution to the local community. Um, yeah, uh, I think all these things are really, really important opportunities that we could we would do well to shine a light on. Chris, what else is on your mind? This is a little bit like the et cetera section. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us that we didn't get to? Um, just leaving it over to you to just say whatever you think is, is important for, for our listeners to, to, to hear. Uh, ben, I, I would just really encourage everyone to be as authentic and genuine as I sense that you have been and, and certainly that I know that I'm trying to be in terms of walking these values. Being relatively new to, uh, to the entrepreneurial world, I think it's clear that there are um, a lot of well-intentioned people uh, trying to do the right thing. Um, and promoting their messages and so on. I think that if we're not careful, we can replicate the same features of the previous model into this you know, new world or, or new paradigm where it becomes about the experts you know, giving the talks and the lectures instead of enabling everyone in the system, all the users to actualize their agency in their own context. Um, and a really good example of that, Ben, if I may, is um, I was recently part of a, a, a prototype um, where, you know, the brief that we were given was to try and imagine, you know, a, a different system. And all the solutions or a lot of the solutions that were being proposed and, and put forward were around toolkits and frameworks and processes. And I found that quite confronting because I sort of felt like, well, hang on, this is just the same language, the same terminology of the existing paradigm. Should we not surely be talking about um, notions or concepts of agency, of flexibility, adaptability, and, and rather than the toolkit and the specific you know, A to Z map, perhaps we could really uh, focus on um, iterating and generating opportunities for uh, more conceptual mindsets, dispositions, aptitudes, uh, working on worldviews and, and, and how people see, see life, because I sense that that will then upskill and, and provide the opportunity to, um, you know, to adapt to their context. Well, see, Chris, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate all your thoughts and, and I'm really excited to start keeping this in my head and thinking about it, letting it run in, into that. So, so, uh, so much, uh, much appreciation for, for your time. Cheers, Ben. And, and likewise, and please let's, um, let's continue um, talking and sharing and, See where this goes. Who knows? I might be able to get away from the Melbourne winter and, and, and come over to you. Or if you want to get good coffee uh, you know, and, and, and good uh, food, come to Melbourne. Excellent. I'll ask you one more question. How do people get in touch, of you, in touch with you? Oh, thank you. Uh, so people are welcome to jump on the website, www.educationalecosystems.com. Um, they can email me, uh, partner at educationalsystems.com.au. Uh, or, you know, the YouTube channel has got lots of different little interactive videos. Um, you can hear my children um, speaking uh, on a couple of them. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty proficient also on, uh, on, um, on LinkedIn, sharing resources and things like that. Super. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Ben. This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Chris for being a contributor to the podcast. Uh, you could always reach us on www.coconut-thinking.design 
um, send us a text, send us uh, an email, whatever it might be. We're looking forward to your thoughts as we uh, move forward about uh, thinking how to break open the ecosystem of education beyond the classroom, physically, mentally, emotionally, so that learning happens everywhere and where it makes sense. And uh, increasingly, uh, I'm going to start thinking, I think, to write a piece on this about really um, leaving the old system behind means just starting over uh, and using the community as the classroom, whatever that might look like across time and space. It doesn't have to be the community locally, although that's wonderful, but also the digital community. And so I welcome anyone who's got any thoughts on this. I'd love to have a conversation with you uh, to get my thinking going, to maybe learn from you. Hopefully I've got something to contribute as well. Again, the website is www.coconut-thinking.design and we look forward to hearing from you soon and uh, also joining you again on a podcast very soon. Bye-bye.